Amen. Well, we're going to be kind of all over our Bibles today, and uh, so you can begin by opening up to Matthew 3. Uh, that's where we'll begin, but I'll be looking at a few other pages, uh, a few other scriptures throughout uh, as we're going to be studying uh, basically the reality of hell. Now, you might be asking yourself, aren't you doing a series on why revival tarries? The answer is yes, I'm doing a series on why revival tarries, and I'm finishing it up with the reality of hell. There's so much that we can learn from Scripture about the reality of hell that can help spawn us to a place of revival because we know that there is a lost and dying world out there that is in need of knowing the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for, him, done for them, what he has paid for them. So I want to talk today about this understanding that hell is real. Hell is real. Now, you would think that that would just be obvious that all Christians believe that, but in truth, I learned from a poll that 85% of Christians believe that heaven is real, and only 70% of Christians believe that hell is real. So that means there's 30% of people out there who claim to be Christian that don't believe that hell is a reality. This came from Pew Research back in 2015. And it blows me away that there are people out there that don't believe that hell is real. In other words, they have to believe in what's called annihilationism. Annihilationism is simply the, the doctrine that believes that when someone dies without Jesus Christ, they're just dead, that that's it. But I want us to study and understand the reality of hell. In fact, Scripture gives more references to hell than it does to heaven. And what we will see throughout Scripture, and we look at the names of hell, just a couple of interesting names that are given to it. There is the name Sheol that is actually mentioned 65 times in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word that simply means a place of darkness or a place of the dead. Then you have in the New Testament, in the Greek language, you have the word Hades that's used in the New Testament 11 times, which simply means a place for the wicked dead. In fact, Greek mythology named one of their characters, one of their demigods, his name was Hades. He was the god of the underworld. But Hades is actually referenced as a place where the dead go, the wicked dead are remaining. There's also the word called Tartarus. That is mentioned one time in the New Testament. That fact is found in 2 Peter 2 and verse 4. And I'll read it to you. It says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. The word there for hell is actually the Greek word Tartarus, which simply means a prison for the fallen angels. Now a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. Aren't the fallen angels roaming around? The answer is yes, but there was a group in Genesis 6 that were in prison for a time. It is, a, it is the same place that the demons were fearful of that Jesus would send them to and beg to be thrown into the pigs. And so this is a place that is a prison where fall, many fallen angels have been reserved. There's also the Hebrew word Gehenna. The word Gehenna is a Hebrew word that simply means the destination of the wicked. It was actually a valley where they burned their children for their gods. In fact, in Jeremiah 7.31, it was rebuked. It says, and they built in the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my heart. It was also used in Jeremiah chapter 19, beginning in verse 2. He says, and go forth unto the valley of the son of Hinnom, this is the word Gahina, which is by the entry of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. And say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. 
Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever heareth his ears shall tingle, because they have forsaken me, and have estranged this place, and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocents. They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my mind. So it was rebuked, but it was a place, a visible place that the Jewish people could understand, a place where they burned their children for false gods. It is also called the lake of fire 12 times in the Greek language. It's known as the non-Christian's final destination. Well, today what I want us to look at is I want us to look at two discoveries about hell. Two discoveries that we'll see in Scripture about hell that can give us a better understanding of the reality of this place and what that means that we as Christians ought to be doing. The first thing we see are the descriptions of hell. Look at me in Matthew 3, verse 10. It says, And now also the axe is laid under the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Verse 12, whose fan is in his hand, and he'll thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. The first reality or first description of hell is fire. It's mentioned throughout Scripture, not just here in Matthew, but numerous. It's the, most, it's the biggest description of hell throughout Scripture fire. Now, what does that represent? What does it mean? It means that it is a place where there is eternal torment. There is this pain that continues to burn one's body. Now, I don't know if you've ever been burned before, but I remember as a little kid on the 4th of July, we used to get those sparklers. I don't know if you've ever had those, and you go out and you'd write your name with them, and they just sparkled. Well, I put a whole pack in my hand. I just poured out several boxes into my hand, and I held it there, not knowing how far up my hand was gripped to those sparklers. And my little brother comes over, and he lights it. And so if you light one, it'll burn slowly. If you light a whole handful, it just goes right down. And it immediately came down on my hand, and it was like it was on fire. And I remember we were out there, my parents, we had a pool. So I immediately jumped in the pool. I had screamed. I jumped in the pool just to try to get some relief on my hand. And I remember doing everything I could. I went inside, and I put some lotion on my hand, and I put all kinds of things on my hand to try to get the, to soothe the burning sensation that was going on there. And it wasn't until somebody said, oh, use mustard, that it finally relieved some of the pain that was going on there, kind of removed some of the sting. But the point was, is it burnt, it hurt, and I, could, I wanted immediate relief. I wanted immediately for somebody to bring about some relief to my hand. Now, could you imagine, that was just my hand, could you imagine the whole body being burned constantly? The pain of being burned constantly throughout eternity. That is a reality of hell. That's just the first description. Look with me in Matthew chapter 8 where we see the second description. It is darkness. Matthew 8 and verse 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. Outer darkness. Now, a lot of people say, well, wait, wait, wait. How, how can that be possible to have fire and darkness. Those two seem to go against each other. Well, if you've ever been in a fire, you know that the smoke from the fire can blind you so much that you can't see anything. It is complete and utter darkness. Now, here's the thing that we need to understand about this darkness. The darkness can bring pain as well. 
The darkness can bring pain as well. And you might say, well, what do you mean? I, I don't know if you've ever tried to walk through a place when it was dark. First church I ever worked at was Forest Park Baptist Church. Uh, there in uh, Randleman, North Carolina. And I remember before we got our, our lamp posts out there that lit up the parking lot, it was just completely and utterly dark. And there'd be times I'd drive in there late at night just to go into my office because I had something I had to do or something I had to pick up or a phone call I had to return. So I'd go into the office and I remember it was completely dark and then I would get to that front door and I was just praying that I could hurry up and get it open because I didn't know who was coming out from the bushes behind me. The darkness just scared me. I remember I'd go in and I'd have to walk a good 10 foot before I could flip on the first switch praying somebody didn't come in the door behind me. You know, it was one of those things where if you walk through the building, it was just real creepy, real eerie, real scary. The darkness just kind of hunkered you down. Now, here's what I want us to understand about this darkness. I've heard people make this statement and it blows me away. They say, I can't wait to go to hell and party with my friends. Well, if it's utter darkness, you'll never see or hear or know your friends. Hell is going to be a lonely place. You think about that kind of darkness. That darkness of being all by yourself. If you think quarantine's hard, just wait till you get to hell. It's going to be a place of darkness and loneliness. You will not know anyone in hell. For those of you who believe you're going to party in hell, I'm sorry. You're going to be in for a rude awakening. But not only is there fire... Not only is there darkness, there's also wailing. And the rest of that passage in Matthew 8, 12, it says, Be cast into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase is made several more times in Matthew 13, 42 and Matthew 13, 50. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now you understand the idea of weeping and wailing. All right, Weeping is the idea of tears flowing from one's eyes. Wailing is the idea of bawling where you're screaming. In fact, in New Testament times, they would pay for these things called professional wailers. When somebody would die, the louder your funeral was, the more well-known you were in the community. So they would actually pay for professional wailers, people to mourn, but that was fake. In Scripture, the Bible says that there will be weeping. In other words, a constant flow of tears from those who are in hell. Constant weeping. Now here's the thing. I can only think of one thing that every time I see it, it brings tears to my eyes. Even as a man, I know. But every time I see those videos of a military personnel coming home and getting their kids or their family, brings me to tears every single time. But it's not those kind of tears. Those are tears of joy for that family. These are tears of pain. The only time I remember having tears of pain was getting spanked. How about you? I mean, my parents, man, when they spanked me, tears flowed, all right? Now, please understand, they did it right. They, this is exactly what I needed at that time. But, man, the pain of what come through, the pain of hell is going to bring tears. And the gnashing of teeth, the idea of gritting the teeth. You, you think about it, before there was modern medicine, they would literally stick a stick in somebody's mouth to bear down on the stick so that they wouldn't grind and break their teeth. That's the gnashing of teeth. It means to be in such intense pain that you just grit your teeth. That's the reality of hell. So we see it's full of wailing and gritting of teeth, fire, darkness. It is also full of torment. Luke 16, 23, and we're going to spend a lot of time in this passage a little bit later, but it says, and he 
in hell, he lifted up his eyes being in torments. It means, torments means to be in constant pain. I wonder if you've ever been in constant pain. Now, let's be honest. Most of the time, if we get into pain, our bodies can go into shock. And when our bodies go into shock, we feel less of the pain. This idea of torments is to be in constant pain. I remember one time uh, in high school when I was playing basketball, I dislocated my pinky. In fact, it was sticking straight up like that. And I remember when my pinky was sticking straight up, I remember going over to my coach and being like, something's wrong with my finger. I can't get it back. And he's like, you're going to have to go to the doctor. And I just remember it hurting the entire time until I finally went to the doctor and they popped it back into place. The idea of torments is a continuous and constant pain. 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 6 gives us another description of hell. It says it is filled with sorrows. 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 6. The sorrows of hell compassed me about. The snares of death prevented me. Sorrows, again, is much like the wailing and gnashing of teeth. It is a continual torment. But then there's a sixth one. And this one's interesting because it is referring to the tribulation, but I believe it can refer to hell as well. If you think about all the descriptions we've looked at thus far, and that is it is restlessness. Revelation 14, verse 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture under the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night. I mean, if you're in constant pain and constant wailing and constant torment, constant gritting of the teeth, constant tears, you can imagine that hell is a place where there is no rest, no peace, no comfort, no help whatsoever. That is another description of hell. Now, this is the one that gets me the most, and I've often thought about this, but the description of hell is simply worm, worm. It's found in Mark chapter 9, and I want to give a, a general description by reading verse 47 first. It says, If thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. In fact, the worm is mentioned three times in verse 44, verse 46, and verse 48, where the worm dieth not. What do worms do to decay and dying bodies? They eat it. The description of hell is like a constant feeling of being eaten. Now, I don't know if you've ever had, uh, ever been bitten before. Uh, if you have a kid, you've probably had at least, if you've had one or two kids, you've probably at least had one that was a biter, right? Anybody have a biter? I had a biter. I mean, bit me so hard one time, uh, without a natural reaction, I just thumped her in the mouth. She stopped biting after that. But the pain of just being bit one time was frustrating, furious. It hurt so bad. Could you imagine a constant feeling of being bitten and eaten throughout eternity? 
Now, to make sure we understand this last description, because you say, well, wait a minute, you've told us it was fire, it was darkness, there was wailing and gnashing of teeth, torment, sorrow, restlessness, the worm, but you haven't showed us that it's everlasting. Well, let's get there. In Matthew 25 and verse 41, that's the last description, it is everlasting. It says, then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting Fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Look at verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And here's the thing. You've probably heard it said before. A lot of people, a lot of pastors said, if you want to live forever. Well, here's the truth. Everybody lives forever. I want you to get that. Now, why is it not called eternal life? It's never once called eternal life, those that go to hell. It's either called eternal everlasting fire, everlasting punishment, everlasting damnation, or everlasting destruction. Why? Because it is no life anyone would want to live. But it is eternal. It is forever. Now you say, wait a minute, you told us that there were some people out there that believe in what's called annihilationism. Yes, there are people out there that believe in a thing called annihilationism and they have the right to be wrong. It's not scriptural. There's no basis of scripture that tells us that people who don't know Jesus just no longer exist. Every form of scripture teaches us that the moment they die, they enter into a place called hell. And it is reserved for them until a day of judgment. When they are brought up, they are simply judged. They don't get a second chance. That's it. They simply get judged and then cast into the lake of fire forever. That's it. It is everlasting. So we see the descriptions of hell. Number two, let's look at the desperation of hell. Turn with me to Luke 16. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time together. Luke 16 Beginning in verse 19, it's a story that Jesus told about the rich man and the beggar. It says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, And likewise, Lazarus, evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they fear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose 
from the dead. Wow, what a story. It says that the rich man went to hell. In verse 23 it says this, And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I wonder if part of the torture of hell is being able to gaze into heaven from time to time and see what could have been if they would have accepted Jesus. Could you imagine how torturous that has to be? That you're in eternal pain, eternal torment, eternal flames, eternal darkness, all kinds of problems, and ever so often you get a glimpse of heaven. Because that's what the rich man received, a glimpse of heaven where he could look up and he could see that poor man that laid at the foot of his door that was begging for crumbs, seated there in favor and in honor. And then it goes away. How torturous that would be to know that that could have been all because one refused the precious gift of God. He goes on in verse 24, it says, And he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm tormented in this flame. Could you imagine just a drop of water could bring relief? Just let him dip the tip of his finger and drop some water in my mouth. Just give me some form of comfort. And the answer is, it can't happen. Because in verse 25, Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus the evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. He says, and beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. You need to understand something. Your eternal destination, by the time you breathe your last breath, that's it. You've made your decision. You don't get another chance. Some have said, well, well wait, wait. What, what if, uh, what if I, I, I want to live my life the way I want to live it? And, and I didn't know that my death was coming, but I really wanted to give my life to the Lord. But I, it's too late. Once you breathe your last breath, there is a great gulf fixed that means there is no changing there is no second chance there is no chance for those that are in hell to come up out of hell and in the midst of the judgment go no i believe your lord now it is too late they will already receive their eternal punishment there's a great gulf fixed but look at the comparison between the rich man and lazarus you see here on earth the rich man was wealthy And Lazarus was poor. On earth, the rich man was inside the house and Lazarus was outside the house. The rich man had all he could eat and Lazarus had no food. The rich man had no needs, but Lazarus needed everything. The rich man desired nothing, but Lazarus desired everything. On earth, the rich man was satisfied and Lazarus suffered. On earth, the rich man was happy and Lazarus was tormented. On earth, the rich man was honored and Lazarus was humiliated. On earth, the rich man feasted and Lazarus begged for crumbs. On earth, the rich man was well known. Lazarus was a nobody. And on earth, the rich man could have helped. Lazarus needed help. But oh, it changed in the next life didn't it oh it changed so desperately 
in such a way that the rich man was now poorer than Lazarus had ever been. And Lazarus was richer than the rich man had ever been. You see, now, in his eternal destination, Lazarus was inside the house. He was in heaven. The rich man was outside the house. He was in hell. Lazarus was receiving a meal that no other man can touch in this world, but the rich man just wanted a drop of water. Lazarus now had no needs, and the rich man needed everything. Lazarus desired nothing, and now the rich man desired everything. Lazarus was now satisfied, but the rich man now suffered. Lazarus was happy, but the rich man was tormented. Lazarus was honored, but the rich man was humiliated. Lazarus was feasting. The rich man was now begging. Lazarus was now known. He's the only one given a name. The rich man was now a nobody. Lazarus could no longer help him. The rich man needed all the help he could get. Oh, how things had changed in eternity. A wise pastor once made this statement to me. He said, if you could choose, if you could choose to have temporary pain for eternal joy or temporary joy for eternal pain, what would you choose? You see, that's really what it is. We can choose to have Christ in this life and go through some difficulties and some hardships, but we have a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, but we will receive eternal blessings and eternal joy in the place called heaven. Or we can receive our, our desires here in this world and we can live like the world and have the things of this world, but oh, the punishment that we shall receive. What would you choose? But I want you to see the desperation in verse 27. I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Let me tell you something. If you have friends that have already died and gone to hell, they are not hoping you're there. They're not hoping you're there. They're not looking forward and saying, oh, you can't wait to get here to party. They're not doing that. Someone asked me, and they've asked me this numerous times. They say, what is the hardest funeral you've ever had to do? Now, I want you to know I've had some hard funerals. I've had some difficult ones. I had to do a funeral. Uh, I hadn't been a pastor very long, and I had to do a funeral for a one-month-old baby. I had to do a funeral in North Carolina for a little girl who was two or three years old. And I'd gone to the hospital, and I saw her pass. I had to do the funeral for a really, really good friend of mine back in North Carolina who ended up overdosing on drugs. Somebody says, well, what's the hardest funeral? I can tell you it was none of those. My good friend that had overdosed on drugs was a Christian. He became depressed, and he fell back into a drug habit before he was lost. And one time, and it took his life. But I know where he's at. The two children, yes, it was hard because the families had lost their loved ones. But I know where they are. The hardest funeral I've ever had to do, and I have had to do these before, was for someone I knew did not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You say, why is that so hard? Because I could give the family no hope. 
I couldn't focus on the one in the casket and tell them he's in a better place. All I could do was preach the gospel and pray that they didn't go to the same place that this person went. The hardest funeral is when you know somebody is lost and you know somebody has not given their life to Christ. The hardest funeral is because you know where that person's going, whether you want them to go there or not. You can beg and plead and pray and desire and want more than anything for that person to know Jesus Christ. You can beg and plead with them. It's like Charles Spurgeon said, you you want them jumping over you as you're gripping their feet, diving into hell because you are trying so hard to keep them from going there. But you can't make the decision for them. Hell is real. You might say, well, so what does that mean? Well, this is twofold today. There's a twofold meaning behind this message. Number one, for those of you that have not accepted Jesus Christ, I pray you will. I pray that you'll accept him not to get out of hell. That's not what I'm praying for. I don't want you to look at this message and go, oh, hell is a horrible place. I don't want to go there. Nobody wants to go there. What you need to realize is you don't want to go to hell. You want to love Christ. Because he took your punishment so that you wouldn't have to go to hell. He took your pain. He took your sins on his body. The Bible says that you might be saved. He did that so that you might be free. He loves you enough. He does not want you to go there. If you go to hell, it's your own choice. You choose to go there because you reject God's gracious free gift for you. So my prayer for you, non-Christian, is that you'll realize that there is an eternal punishment, but that God loves you so much, he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, and you'll accept him today. That's my prayer. Now the second fold part is for us as Christians. As Christians, that we realize that hell is real, and that there are a lot of our friends, and neighbors, and co-workers, and family, that are going to go there if they don't know Jesus Christ. And that we better get real with sharing the message of Christ with them. We better get real and we better do everything we can. I will beg, plead, whatever it takes for somebody to know my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because there is no greater decision you will ever make in this life. None. But as Christians, we need to be, what Jude says, dragging them out of the fire. Or as Charles Spurgeon, let them leap over our bodies to get to hell. As we're pleading and begging with them not to go. But we need to be doing the pleading and the begging. And telling them about what Jesus has done for them. You see, hell is real. It's as real as it can be. And for those of you that don't know Jesus, it's where you will go. And my prayer, I am begging you, don't go there. You say, well, what do I need to do? The Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, exactly what we need to do. If we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. First, you've got to confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, that confession means that that becomes your mantra. It becomes your life. 
that it is not just words, but it is something you live, that Jesus is Lord. It is not something you say. You can't just say Jesus is Lord and then go out there and live for yourself. When you proclaim that Jesus is Lord, you have now surrendered your life to him. He is the Lord and Savior of your life. And the only ones that can truly proclaim that Jesus is Lord are those that are living for him as the Lord of their life. And then you've got to believe. You've got to believe that Jesus died for your sins. That he was buried and three days later he rose again that you might be saved. That's it. Jesus paid it all. I love that song. All to him I owe. My prayer today is if you don't know Jesus Christ, today you will. And if you do, you find those who don't know him and you tell them about him.